Titus. And uh, many of the things in the book of Titus are already covered in First and Second Timothy. And so, though we will cover them, we may not um, spend as much time as we did in First and Second Timothy over the same things. But uh, as Paul is writing to Titus, he calls Titus, as he did Timothy, mine own son after the common faith. And uh, in verse 4, in verse 5, he says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. Now, one thing that we want to look at here, as Paul is giving Timothy direction, he said, I've appointed for you to ordain and to set up elders in every city. And uh, just, just a quick note here, the reason why Paul had set Titus to ordain elders is because that's God's program for his church, to have a pastor. Uh, it wasn't from Paul. It wasn't like Paul was inventing some new thing. Paul was only confirming what was already there. People use things like this, and the reason why I bring it up is they want to say, uh, they want to pretend that Paul acted much like a modern-day pope does when he decides something brand new. And, and you're not going to find brand new things in the Bible. What you're going to find is, we found the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And it was ordered and it was set up on the day of Pentecost. They were added to. It did not begin on the day of Pentecost. And the church began to function. And now we come down and we have Titus being left on the island of Crete to do exactly what had already been done in the churches. We see that there. Just, just want to remind ourselves because... People like to paint this as if Paul was just writing brand new things, and, and he was not. And so uh, he gives the detail here much the same as, uh, as he did in First and Second Timothy. And he says, first, he says, I want you to set in order things that are wanting. And then he says, ordain elders. And then he goes on to explain what it means to ordain elders. And then he comes back in verse 10 to get those things that are wanting. And so we're, we're going to just take it in the order it comes. And here are the requirements for a bishop or a pastor, if any, be blameless. Now, the word blameless means without laying general accusation. Uh, it means something... Uh, that is a general testimony to a person's life. This is one of the reasons uh, we go through. And the second one is the husband of one wife. This is why we do not believe that a man who's been divorced ought to be a pastor. Uh, I can't tell you anyone who has been through a divorce situation that is blameless. Uh, I mean, that's why we handle these things in the court of law today is because there has to be blame to be established. And even if the judge and the jury and everybody involved here says it's all her fault or it's all his fault, let me tell you something. It doesn't work out that way. It takes two. Uh, always does. And 
we need to be very, very careful of putting people into the ministry that have had some very different past. Uh, I, I've known, uh, remember when I was in Bible college, we were discussing among ourselves and even in the ministry, the same thing has got up is brought up, how can you take someone that lived a very, very wicked, worldly life and uh, they never got married and someone who lived not near as bad, a wild life running around and all of that, the only thing they have on their record is a divorce and the one man who was doing everything and anything except getting married, he's allowed to go into the ministry and the other man isn't. And they bring that up, but see, blameless takes care of that thing. I don't think the first man is any more qualified than the second. And we've got to be careful about who we put into the ministry. And I can tell you stories of men who were put into the ministry that technically were not blameless, and it always ends in great distress. And so... Uh, the idea of being the husband of one wife, yes, it does imply one wife, not a polygamist. Uh, but uh, it doesn't mean one at a time. Um, it, it just certainly does not imply that. And anyone who wants to read that into the passage, um, shall we say, has got ulterior motives in their method of interpretation. And that can be proven the second, the third one here is having faithful children. And uh, boy, that, uh, whoops, I missed one, didn't I? For the bishop of God must be blameless, the steward of God, no, husband of one wife, having faithful children, and not accused of riot or unruly. I got them out of order on the outline here. But, uh, no, I just need to put my glasses on. Okay, having faithful children, and, uh, and that, that's self-explanatory. If you cannot lead your children in the way of the Bible, how are you going to lead a church? Uh, it's just that simple. Uh, I was in uh, uh, Cold Stone Creamery, when was that, Friday night or Saturday night with the kids, and, and uh, we were all there, and there was this other uh, fellow... Uh, ahead of me and he looked and I was holding Joseph, I mean Jason and all the other kids were out there and doing what they do with ice cream, smearing it all over the place and having a great time. And he said, I guess that's the better half of your family out there. I said, well, that's most of them. Mo most of them? I said, well, I got three off in college and how many kids do you have? And so I, I love doing this, only 12. And, I mean, just freak the poor guy out. And he'd just stand there. His eyes are this big around. He says, but you're young. And they keep you young. Amen. And got to witness. And he kept saying, how do they get along with each other? And I probably shouldn't have said this, but it's true. I said, they don't have a choice. You know, children will do what you expect of them. And if you don't expect much, you don't get much. And sometimes even when you expect a lot, you don't get much. But you keep working at it until you do. Amen? 
that's what the idea is, and it's a, it's a scary thing to me that pastors lose their children to the world. I, I don't want that to happen. I'm not satisfied with four out of five or 11 out of 12. I, I want 12 out of 12. That's the only thing I'm going to be satisfied with in this life. And uh, the, if something ever came up, I hope the church and I would have enough patience and grace to stop and make that thing work out. You cannot mess up when it comes to children. It says, not accused of riot or unruly. Um, that's pretty simple now, isn't it? Uh, but we have a lot of pastors that are inciting to riot. How many of you remember during the last presidential campaign we had the preacher in Chicago and the preacher here in Manhattan going back and forth at each other. Does anybody remember that? Uh, Jeremiah Wright and uh, I think the preacher in Manhattan was called, last name is Manning. And uh, he liked the Clintons. Uh, Mr. Manning over here in Harlem. And of course, Jeremiah Wright, even though Obama threw him under the bus, still liked Obama. And, and they were sitting there literally... I mean, calling each other every dirty name in the book. I mean, to listen to the tapes was amazing. Uh, don't recommend it, but it was just part of the talk shows, and so I listened, and, you know, it says, not accused of riot or unruly. I know preachers that say things in the pulpit ought never be said. I know it adds emphasis when you use rude language, but I, I doesn't belong in the pulpit. That's what this is talking about. And then he goes on and he reiterates this whole thing. He says, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. Now, a steward is someone that holds in possession things that belong to another. We have something that does not belong to us. That's why we do not have the ability to change what our church believes to adapt to the time. Because it belongs to God, it doesn't belong to us. If you can find me one verse in the Bible where it says, go out to the world and find out what they have and bring it into church, then I'll do it. But uh, I'm pretty safe by saying that verse isn't in the Bible. Uh, never does it tell us to go out to the world and learn from the world how to serve God because the world cannot teach you how to serve God. That's why we don't have Rick Warren's book laying around. Uh, if we do, we throw it away where it belongs. Amen. Uh, that's why we don't have Christian rock music in the church. That's why we're not into contemporary Christianity and small groups and, and all of these other things. We're not going to market Jesus. I still remember the day this pastor that... At one time, I respected, I, I knew a lot of good things. He sat me down and he said, Pete, you've got to understand something. It's marketing, pure and simple. And being that he was an older man than I was, I, I tried to honor him for his age and I didn't say much. Uh, he knows better than to say something now, I'm sure. But listen, it's not up for option because we are stewards of what God has given us. I'm not trading in this Bible for a new and updated version. 
I'll stick with the one that God gave me. It's because I don't have the right to change anything. We are stewards. Our church takes what God gives us and gives that to the world. And if the world doesn't like it, guess what? Sinners should not be pleased with the holiness of God. Now, should they? That's one of the problems with our quote-unquote Christianity today is we make it so pleasant that sinners can love God's word in their sin. That's not being a steward. That's changing what God gave us. We do not offer new products. We take what God has given us and we have to show the world. It doesn't take long to show the world the emptiness and the foolishness and the vanity of sin, does it? Hello? It shouldn't take that much and show them the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. That's being a steward, amen? And doing it in love, and that's covered here, it says not self-willed. I've met preachers that would build a church whether Jesus showed up or not. I've met people that are just going to do something no matter what. You know, I found out something a long time ago. If God was really doing something, he'd tell my pastor about it too. If God really wants you to marry that beautiful young lady, you know what? He just might tell her too. Amen? When I was dating my wife, I was the first one that broke the barrier and got through into the Marshall family, you know. And so there was a list of guys. I mean, everywhere I went, how did you do it? And uh, I said, listen, you know, when God does the work, he, he let Brother Marshall know as well. And uh, if you can figure out how to tell God to let Brother Marshall know it's okay for you to marry one of his daughters, be my guest. But that's the way it works, buddy. And and, uh, listen, not self-willed. This idea of having to have things your way is not part of the ministry of God. And, And it's something that we have to work on. Not soon angry. said, but... But Jesus didn't have the governor that we have, uh, uh, the mayor that we, the the president, the the Congress. Jesus didn't have, Jesus had to put up with Caesar in Rome. Let me tell you, he had to put up with the Pharisees. And by the way, there are some things that we ought to get angry about. You ought to pray with me, preach a sermon about getting angry about the things we ought to get angry about and not getting angry about the things we ought not to be angry about. Uh, You know, that's called perversion, and it's one of the greatest problems of our day. We get upset about things that we ought not get upset about. And the things that we really ought to be just red in the face and the bulging veins and, and, and really upset about, We let go without a whimper. Not soon angry, not given to wine. Now, have to be careful, and and maybe I'm reading just a little bit into this, but 
it, it does not mean not a drunk, okay? If you're supposed to be blameless, that doesn't mean you just get drunk every once in a while. You're not given to wine where you're an alcoholic and have to be drunk every day. That's not what it's talking about, my friend. You'll notice uh, in the book of uh, uh, Timothy, he, he tells Timothy to take a little wine for thy stomach's sake. So is he telling Timothy to drink alcoholic beverage? No, he is not. He is telling Timothy to drink something else other than water because Timothy was trying to be so pure and so careful that all he would drink was water and he had some problems. I, knew a pre- I can tell you the story of a preacher who, who read that verse and said, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake. And he said, nobody has more stomach problems than I do. And he was right. I mean, he had had like, uh, entire portions of his digestive tract removed. He had had serious operation after operation. And, and he went to his doctor and asked him, and the doctor said, well, listen, uh, it really would help you if you would do that. And this was an independent, fundamental, Bible-believing pastor. And he became an alcoholic and lost his ministry. Do you think that's what God intended for to happen in that man's life? Let me tell you, you cannot play with alcohol and win. Stay away from it. When it says not given to wine, what it's talking about here is given to the finer things of life. My mom used to put it this way. She says, you got steak taste. The only problem is you only have a hamburger wallet. And... That is what this is talking about. There are some people who cannot stand the $20 shirt from JCPenney. It has got to be the whatever. And I don't even know what those things are. I don't want to know what those things are. They can't handle just the average, everyday thing. They have to have the finer things. If you're going to be in the ministry, if you're going to serve the Lord, you've got to get past that. That's what it's talking about. You don't have to have what everybody else has to have. And uh, by the way, it's good for the preacher, but it's good for the church member too. It'll keep you out of a lot of trouble, won't it? And uh, it says, no striker. That just means you don't go around hitting people. Amen? Uh, You can get put in jail for that kind of thing. Uh, Preacher ought not be in that category. Not given to filthy lucre. Money ought not be a temptation to you. Let me tell you, you can have lots of opportunities, even in the ministry, to make money if you want to do it. And if money is going to be a temptation for you, if that's going to be one of your things, let me tell you, you can get in the ministry and get money. In fact, they told uh, L. Ron Hubbard before he began Scientology, if you want to be a millionaire, start a religion. He did. And he made a lot of money. I wonder if it does him any good now. I, I can tell you it doesn't. 
And that's simply what it's saying here. Not for filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality. Listen. Love to serve people. Love good men. Be sober. That means understand what's going on. Just, holy, temperate. I mean, we know the meaning of those words. And these ought to be. And and by the way, when Brother Davis comes down for his ordination, we're going to be getting out the list and, and making sure. And then he gives two more things here. In verse 9, he says, I want you to hold fast. He says, holding fast, continually grabbing a hold of, anchored to, attached the faithful word as he hath been taught. I'll tell you what, that's the job of the preacher right there. You don't need anything new. And then you look at the rest of this uh, verse, that he may be able by what? Sound doctrine. Paul said, listen, Titus, you've been taught what is true. You take that truth and you have two things to do with it. Number one, you have to exhort the brethren. You have to challenge and you have to plead with people to do what is right. And then you have to convince the gainsayers. We've had people come into this church and said, man, I don't like what goes on at Open Door Bible Baptist Church. Say, well, why? What's wrong? Well, you're just in my face all the time with the Bible. I said, that's a good thing. That's called exhortation. I said, can you tell me anything that I have taught that's not in the Bible? Well, well, you're just a better arguer than I am. I'd lose that argument, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure too, because what I'm telling you is what's in the Bible. But I don't like it. Well, what we've just done is convinced the gainsayer now, haven't we? And that doesn't mean they're going to stop gainsaying. They're going to stop arguing. They're going to stop not liking what is truth. That's what a gainsayer does. A gainsayer is somebody that always has something to say. Oh, but do I have to take out the trash and wash the cans? And I mean, I did my work. That's gainsaying. Don't do it. It's evil. It's wrong. Learn to do what is right. Amen? Without the commentary, by the way. Now, starting in verse 10, Paul goes back and he picks up the things that are wanting. And here we go. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. Now let me tell you something. If you're going to deal with unruly people, if you're going to deal with vain talkers and deceivers, your life has got to be separate from those things so that you can look them in the face and say, what you're doing is not what I'm doing And if we're going to serve God together, you've got to do what the Bible says to do, not what you want to do. That's part of the job of the preacher. That's why he told him, Titus, I want there to be elders or pastors in the church. And by the way, the word bishop is just simply another Bible word for pastor. 
Uh, don't go looking for that. I could uh, call myself Bishop Montoro and be right in the Bible, but the only problem is there's a lot of kooks out there that have misused and abused that term, and it would not be understood. And so I picked the simplest Bible term that I can find, and that is pastor. So what does a pastor do? Everything. Don't worry about it. A pastor preaches the Word of God. That's the main job. But there comes a time when there's got to be some things set right. And it says, For there are many unruly and vain talkers. It's obedience in the lives of people who call themselves believers. You ought to be challenged every time you come in to conform your life, to draw a little closer to Jesus. Amen? And and that's how this is dealt with. Uh, We've had the unruly and vain talkers and deceivers come in through the doors. But you know what has happened? Someone has come and said, Pastor, do you know that that visitor is trying to get people to, to go to his church or go to a different church? We had that happen about a year ago. Uh, a fellow was talking to people that were visiting our services and trying to encourage them, saying, you know, when pastor preaches about Calvinism, he's really wrong. You ought to go to a church and listen to someone tell you the truth about Calvinism, and it's a good thing. And uh, two or three people came to me and said, Pastor, this is what's going on. Well, I found that dude. I, I was just not looking for the opportunity, happened to be going about... Business for the church walked into a place, and guess who was there? I'm not going to give you his name. Man, I pinned him up. I, not literally, but uh, I got in his face, and I said, what you're doing is dishonest. What you're doing is unethical. I said, if you want to visit our services, that's one thing. But you're not going to use your presence in our service to draw people out of this church. That is wicked. That is evil. If you really have something that good, I said, go get it on your own. I said, if you try that one more time, I'm going to give your name and I'm going to call you out in the service and I'm going to explain to everybody what you're doing. He said, you said that? Yeah, I said that to him. You know what? I hadn't been back since. Because I think more of our people than to allow somebody. That's a vain talker. It's a deceiver. There's nothing true about Calvinism. The little bit of truth that Calvinism contains is by accident. Calvin was a lawyer. He had no theological training whatsoever when he wrote his institutes. And yet they're the quote-unquote most influential theological treatise in history, right? Lies, lies, lies. Here's the most influential theological treatise in history and the only one worth paying attention to. Amen? Listen, it, it has happened. And in, in Crete, the, pers- the people they were dealing with, it's especially they of the circumcision, this is talking about the Pharisees, the scribes, the same people that gave Jesus all the trouble... It says here, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, 
teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Now, I know this book has been passed around in our church, and if you have it, be very careful with it. Um, how many people know uh, how uh, to train up a child by Michael Pearl? Now, let me tell you, there is some truth in that book. But there's an awful lot of lies in that book, too. And Michael Pearl would not be doing what he does, with the exception of people sending him money and supporting him and following his almost cult-like little movement. He has done a lot to hurt good, strong, independent Baptist churches and lead families away from the truth of the Scripture. And I know some very good people passed out the book. But I'm telling you as your pastor that when it talks about mouths that must be stopped, Mike Pearl's one of them. Because he takes people and he teaches them that the family is more important than the church. Let me tell you, that's not true. It's just like trying to say, uh, loving my ministry and serving the Lord is more important than taking care of my family. God first, family second, others third. No, you've got to do both at the same time. The more I love God, the more I will love Him and take care of my family properly. The more I love my family, the more I'm going to bring them to church and make them involved in church because church is part of God's plan for your life. And so, this is what it's talking about. Subverting whole houses, teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. We still have the people going around today doing this stuff, and it's something that we must warn against. And uh, I'm sorry if I offend you by calling out names, but the Bible says this is what we have to do on occasion. It says, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, talking about the Cretans. The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Now, I don't know. I've never been to Crete. I'll take Paul's word for it. Uh, but uh, I do know, and we talked about this last time we were in the book of Titus, that if you want to really insult a Greek person, you call him a Crete. And, uh, and I do know that if you find someone that has no character, look it up in the dictionary, the word Cretian uh, is uh, an adjective that you can apply, just like the word Corinthian. Uh, these are terms that were once used to describe people that have no character. And uh, Paul says, listen, here is the way to deal with this. When you have no character... It says you have to rebuke them sharply. Now that's not pleasant. That's not pleasant for the person receiving the rebuke. That's not pleasant for the person giving the rebuke. But rebuke is part of this. It says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That's step one. Step two not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Peter and I have 
dealt with this subject. Peter is a great reader. He loves to just read, and he loves to read boring, awful things that no one else has ever wanted to read. And I've tried to tell my son and warn him, the world is full of knowledge, my friend. But there is knowledge out there that will destroy you as a human being. Listen, don't listen to the fables. Don't listen to the commandments of men. Don't live your life by Bill Gates' Ten Commandments. They're not as good as God's is. Don't live your life. I, I've often told the story of a preacher, and he's with the Lord now, I believe. And No, he's not. He's still alive. And, and I won't give his name, but he knew a great preacher that lived about 50 years ago, and he combed his hair the way the preacher combed his hair. He wore the same 1930s, 40s, black horn-rimmed glasses as the preacher wore. Now, this was in the 90s, and he was still parting his hair, and he wore the same old-fashioned, uh, how shall we say, matchless plaid uh, uh, jackets, I mean, I'm talking about stuff you couldn't match the color in if you went to a fashion store. But that's the way they dressed in the 30s and the 40s. And he dressed the same way. He carried himself the same way. He looked the same way. He tried to preach the same way. I just wonder how much he would have accomplished if he tried to imitate Christ instead of Dr. So-and-so. Don't follow the commandments of men, no matter how good they are. Stick with God. Amen? He said, these two things will take people that do not have character and give them character. So, you know what we're going to do here at Open Door Bible Baptist Church? We're going to call sin, sin. And... We're going to teach you as much as is humanly possible what commandments come from men. That's why I don't have any use for Calvinism. It's the commandments of men. Maybe some of it is right. So what? Anything that's right in Calvinism, I already know because I studied my Bible. And the rest of it, you don't need. Don't listen to the commandments of men. And don't worry about... The fables. How many of you remember when they did that television show, they found the bones of Jesus? Does anybody remember that? Uh, they did it at Easter Sunday. A couple, I think it was two years ago or something like that. And, and people get all excited. And, and how many remember Mr. Brown's The Da Vinci Code? And, and, uh, and I remember people getting all excited about that that stuff and saying, listen, you, you really, pastor, you ought to preach a sermon about that. No. Fables, my friend. Plain, old-fashioned fables. I'm not going to preach about fables. It's ridiculous. It has nothing to do with the life of a Christian. We're not going to take time to answer it because it doesn't deserve an answer. 
Now look here in these last two verses and we'll be done. You have to understand what's going on. Understand the world in which you live. Unto the pure, all things are pure. You know what? You meet somebody with a pure mind, you don't have to worry about what they're thinking. Amen? But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. You try to deal with an unsaved, unbelieving person like you deal with a saved person, you're going to lose every time. You can't prove to them anything is pure. That's why I'm not that big on apologetics. Because you cannot take a person of corrupt mind and soul and prove to them in any fashion what is true. They won't accept it. So you have to understand when you're dealing with someone of a defiled mind and conscience, you cannot argue with them on the same level as you do someone who is striving to serve Jesus Christ. I believe that's what Solomon talks about in, in Proverbs 26, where he says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. The next verse, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be also like unto him. Guess what? You're going to sit here and argue with the undefiled and I mean the un, unbelieving and defiled in conscience. You're the one that's going to end up looking and sounding like the fool, not them. He's saying, Titus, you've got to understand what's going on. Don't waste your time trying to reason. Just keep giving the gospel. Just keep giving them Bible verses. Just keep giving them scripture. And show them the difference that verse 16 offers. It says, they profess that they know God. I, can't, I wish I had a dollar for everyone that said, well, pastor, I believe in God. We all serve the same God. There's only one God. Wow, that's right. But my God's not a drunk. My God's not a rock star. My God does not go to the garbage cans of this world to find talent that can't make it in, in the professional realm of this world and revamp them so they can be Christian rock stars, i.e., Amy Grant and Stephen Curtis Chapman and a bunch of those other people, everyone that's had the opportunity to go to the world, they've done it. Many of the great quote-unquote singers, especially in country music, Dolly Parton started out singing in churches as a little girl. That's why they all sing hymns at the end of their filthy, putrid concerts. That's where they started from. Listen. They profess that they know God, but their life denies Him. It says, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. That's not a Christian, my friend. Don't pretend they are. Don't try to reform a worldling. They have to be born again. That's what Paul's telling Titus. He says, you're going to have to do some hard things. And by the way, we're going to have to do some hard things as a church. We're going to have to deal with issues. And, and we want people 
to see their lives changed by the gospel. Amen? We don't want someone just coming in saying, I believe in Jesus, I go to church every Sunday, but I just can't quit smoking. Listen, God wants you to have the victory over those things. He wants you to live differently. And that's what Paul's telling Titus. And he says, I want you to straighten this out in these churches. Now, it gets a little more pleasant as we go on. Verse 1 says, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Uh, there is a positive side to this thing. But chapter 1, we're dealing with the negative issues. And there's not a one of us here that hasn't had to deal with them. And guess what? You're going to have to deal with them again till Jesus comes back. But it's worth it because we're stewards of that which does not belong to us. The gospel belongs to God. The Bible is His word, not ours. The doctrine that we believe is His, not ours. We get to use it for a little bit. And by the way, if we use it His way, Who's going to benefit? We are. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask.